0: everyone. I'm Cheryl Josephson. This is the Family Life Canada podcast, a place for help and hope for our marriages and our families. And I say our, because all of us at Family Life Canada are with you on this journey. We all want thriving marriages. We all want healthy families. And we know we can benefit from the experiences and best practices of other people. So we tend to invite guests onto this podcast who have helped us. And that's certainly the case with our guests this week. But just before I introduce her, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Compassion Canada has come alongside Family Life Canada in this season of COVID-19 to help us offer this resource. Their heart, like ours, is for the well-being of families. We focus on Canada. They focus internationally. But And right now, that international need is really, really great. As always, when a crisis hit. It hits those living in poverty the hardest, and Compassion is working through local churches to bring food and hygiene kits and housing for families deeply affected by the pandemic. We'll tell you at the end of the podcast how you can get involved, but right now we just want to say we're really proud of what they're doing, and we're proud to partner Compassion Canada. Now to our guest, who also happens to be a personal friend of mine. Dr. Barbara Wilson is a licensed clinical psychologist. She's an author, a speaker, a researcher, a wife, a mom, a Grammy, and
1: she's yay. Canadian. Yes, I am.
0: Yay. <laughs> yay, yay. <laughs> Absolutely. Born and raised. Uh, it's good to talk to you again. Now, we were part of the same church when Neil and I lived in California, and it was so great to get together with you and your family and talk hockey and Canadian politics and Tim Horton coffee and Swiss <laughs> And uh, Oh, you're, Oh, you're right. I forgot about that. Yeah. I want to start talking about your book. Kiss me again. Now I, we were friends when you were writing this book and I, as you would talk about over coffee and dinner, the things that you were learning and writing about, I just had this deep sense like, Oh my goodness, this is going to be incredibly helpful to couples. And it has been to thousands of couples around the world. Uh, so, congratulations first of all. Thanks for doing that. It's it's a resource we recommend all the time.
1: Uh, take take us back. Why did you Why did you write? This well, book? it starts back a little bit farther, but actually to my first book, The Invisible Bond, because I was uh, a sexual health educator, and I don't know how that happened, but just began to as a teacher do that for pregnancy centers, and as I was out, you know, learning and preparing these curriculums to take into schools and colleges i was learning just a little bit more about how sex you know sexual intimacy outside of marriage can impact marriage and at the time i was you know uh, a young wife and i was struggling with some of that with my in my own marriage and i didn't understand why that was and as i began to learn about it god began to start you know stirring my heart going you know, the, you know, some of the things that, you, that happened to you or the choices that you made before you got married, this is why you're struggling inside your marriage. And so that's kind of what started me on my own journey of healing. And uh, I wrote The Invisible Bond, which shares some of my story, and I talk about the brain and sex. But I think what really led to Kiss Me Again was I began to lead other women through healing after I went through my own healing. And I began to, you know, start writing a curriculum and... They in my church, said, "Hey, why don't you start a study and help women heal from their sexual past?" And I'm going, "Okay, why not? Who, why, who, who, would do that, right?" So, I started doing that, and what I discovered that not only in my own experience as I healed from my sexual past and a lot of, you know, my own choices that I made, um, it was it was healing my marriage and it was changing uh, my relationship with my husband, my desire for sex in in marriage, my emotional intimacy. And as I led, started leading women through healing, the th- same things were happening to them. You know how sometimes when things happen to us, we go, it's just me. This is just me. And when God started to show me that this wasn't just about me, that so many women were struggling with this same issue. And as they began to have healing, their marriages changed too. And that's what led to Kiss Me Again. You know, I just kind of realized that you know, th- this is a bigger issue than I even imagined. And God has, as you said, has just been so amazing to take that around the world and, and use it to help so many people heal.
0: Well, and I think the focus to Have Kissed Me Again
1: isn't just for right. women, it's for mm-hmm. couples, particularly. That's right. I wrote it. I wrote it. Uh, I, I kind of wrote it to women because publishers say women tend to read more books. But throughout the book, I'm inviting, you know, the husbands into that journey. And um, it's actually really good also if you're just engaged and getting ready to get married to kind of just process anything in your past that may be you know, still a struggle that you're going to bring into your marriage. Yeah. I heard you say one time that a lot
0: of us hope that marriage will be this giant eraser <laughs> that just kind of gets rid of all that sexual junk in our past. Exactly. And when that doesn't happen, we tend to get pretty disillusioned, a little discouraged, and sometimes we can actually think, well, we must have married the wrong person because otherwise this this whole sexual relationship would be a lot easier.
1: Exactly. Um, talk about that yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's one of the messages that we kind of hear in our culture, you know, like sex is no big deal. We can have sex. It's just physical. We move on. And, you know, when I was kind of doing, working and researching it and doing my own healing, Uh, You know, the whole concept in the Bible that talks about that one flesh bond, it's like that became, you know, this new meaning to me. I was thinking originally, it's just like, you know, walking down the aisle and saying I do, but understanding now that there's this, this, this sexual intimacy has a whole, you know, contributing factor to that one flesh bond. And so even though we think we can just have sex and move on, which is happening in our very promiscuous culture, in fact, almost expected now. We don't realize that we are creating that one flesh bond every time, you know, we're involved in that sexual intimacy with a partner outside of marriage. And, you know, so then we bring all of these bonds with us into the next relationship and eventually into marriage. And I know, you know, that was kind of what I kind of believed, oh, you know, like marriage is just going to be this giant eraser. Plus, you know, I'd kind of thought I'd process my past and ask for forgiveness, but I didn't realize that all of those bonds, even chemically, you know, because I talk about, you know, the brain and and the bonding that happens. And um, even chemically, we bring those kind of almost permanent imprints of those past relationships. And it can keep us from bonding fully in our marriage relationship, which then, you know, when we start having struggles in our marriage relationship, you know, and we start feeling a little bit disconnected, then that can cause those problems because we're not able to feel close and safe. And that's really important for women just even in to have sexual intimacy to feel safe in their relationship if they don't feel emotionally close.
0: Mm-hmm. So talk just a little bit about what happens in the brain um, when, when we're bonding in a sexual relationship. Uh,
1: what's, that, what's at play here? What's working? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, we've been... We, we've known so much about how we release chemicals and hormones during sex, and um, but in the last twenty years or so, we've discovered that humans, men and women, released high release high amounts of oxytocin during sexual arousal and release, and um, and that was kind of really changing because it changed everything for us in terms of understanding that there's really a very strong bond that's happening. And that does happen through sexual intimacy, and so as we began to you know discover this, we knew this happened in you know mammals, but when we began to discover that it happened in humans, it kind of changed the focus of how humans bond. So women release high amounts of oxytocin during um, birth and breastfeeding, which again is a is a bonding situation, bonding them to their young, so that they'll still feed them when they become teenagers and start rolling their eyes at you and slamming the door on the way out. <laughs> we'll still feed those people. Um, but the same thing happens with couples. So, you know, as I've done my study in um, clinical psychology and learning about attachment theory, which is really huge and very, in, in fact, very biblical, how God created us to bond from the moment we're born to our primary, primary caregivers. And then we transfer that You know, attachment bond to our spouses, and we need that to feel, you know, that we belong to that person. That's our person in life who's going to have our back. And often, you know, in our promiscuous culture, we're kind of um, we're we're we're, we're kind of sidelining that ability to have that kind of bond because we're having sex too soon. We're having sex outside, like we have sex before we get married, and then we're not getting to that higher level of emotional intimacy and then we get into marriage and start having struggles and then we wonder like is this my person do they have my back and am I safe with them and that's when you know we start to feel disillusioned yeah so when we end these relationships
0: in our past we break up with Mm -hmm. boyfriends or um, partners we end the relationship, but we don't end those emotion, those emotional, those chemical bonds in our brain, and we bring those in. And so it's almost like we carry in these these micro bonds to other people into our marriage relationship. So I think it's showing up. It show what? How does this show up in our dissatisfaction? We're
1: we're not interested in sex.
0: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> well, and yeah, that's a good point because actually, you know, science has discovered that we can start to impact our ability to release oxytocin in future relationships. So when we've had sex in a relationship, and just just kind of for interesting information, you know, when we release oxytocin, it's designed to reduce stress, reduce fear, kind of increase kind of a sense of, you know, like belonging. And it also creates what we call positive memory airbrushing, which means that oxytocin Increases our recall of positive events and decreases our recall of negative events. It's why women will have more than one child without oxytocin. You know, we're probably like, oh, <laughs> not doing that again. But, um, but anyway, so what we've discovered is that when you've had sex and then broken up, there's a lot of emotional, you know, consequence to that, whether we feel, you know, just completely broken, angry. Used uh, And then we start to feel like, what's wrong with me? But all of those emotional wounds, um, they can start to inhibit our production release of oxytocin because now we're starting to release what we call our um, endorphins or our natural pain reliever. So we release that when we're in emotional pain, just like we're in physical pain. And when that happens, we know that the chronic release of endorphins or that natural pain reliever can start to inhibit the production and release of oxytocin. So what I see a lot of times with women that come to me is they've ended up in this cycle of broken relationships. and, And with each one, they are accumulating more and more of these negative wounds that they carry with them. And they kind of think when they get into the next relationship, you know, like that newness makes the wounds seem like they've gone away, but they haven't really gone away. And it's like, we accumulate that. And then we, you know, we get into a marriage. um, And then here's the interesting thing about those past wounds. Like we might not be thinking about it at the time, but our body remembers. And so, you know, your spouse might say something or have a look or something, you know, just a tone that might trigger that same feeling that you had in the past. And that just brings all of those wounds back up. But in addition, you know, what I hear is just so much kind of shame and regret um, as well as just, you know, like a lack of self-confidence and maybe there's something wrong with me, but also a negative view of sex, a negative view even of men or just of relationships. And we bring that into our relationship and, And then it just doesn't feel safe. I know that happened with me. And um, I didn't see, you know, sexual intimacy as something pleasant or loving. It was just a way for, you know, guys to kind of just kind of, you know, get what they wanted. And I kind of projected that onto my husband. And of course that wasn't fair to do that to him, but, you know, that was just what happened to me. And, And yeah, it kept me from really, Being able to feel safe in my marriage in the way that I could really, you know, enjoy the kind of sexual intimacy that God wanted for us. Hmm.
0: Now, so far, we've talked about primarily about people's choices they've made Mm -hmm. in their own sexual story. What about things that have happened to you? What about sexual trauma, Mm -hmm. sexual abuse?
1: Yeah, that is so, so hard. And I know that there, you know, that, and that there's definitely, You know, a bonding that happens with that, but it's more like a trauma bonding that happens. And so something in the brain happens with that too. So, a lot of times, even with like, say, childhood sexual abuse, you don't even, you know, I just had someone yesterday who had no memory of it until, you know, like in her 20s. And because sometimes the the brain just kind of protects us from that memory. And then a lot of times, what happens is when women get married or they start having children, the effects of that child abuse comes out and that can be very, very distressing. Also with, you know, with the trauma, it just makes sex scary. It makes you feel out of control and powerless. And, you know, with, especially with, and with childhood abuse, children kind of learn that their bodies aren't their own. Like they don't have a boundary. And unfortunately then it can lead them to be re-victimized again in the future and so there's a great need to be able to heal from that. See, and definitely, that's an area you would want to see a professional work through some trauma healing. Um, EMDR, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with that, is a eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is a very, very effective treatment. Uh, something that I use to help people heal from childhood sexual abuse or sexual trauma or um, you know assault. Hmm.
0: Is there an element about marriage, because I've heard this story so many times from young women who tell me, I thought I dealt with the sexual abuse in my past, I thought it was kind of laid to rest, and, um, and then I got married, and, and about a year or two in, it started to resurface again. Is there something about the marriage relationship that, that tells our brain that now it's safe to to kind of go back and process some of this stuff is, is, is hmm. there something about that's a, that? Yeah,
1: that's a good point. And I think that's true. I think I think there is um there is something about that. And if you do have to feel ready and safe to be able to process that. But it doesn't feel like that at the time. All of a sudden it feels very scary. No. Um and you know and I've heard, I've heard women
0: say, I love my husband. I know I'm loved. Why is this showing? is for the first time in my life, I feel fully loved, fully accepted. Uh, so why is this showing mm-hmm. up now? And I just wondered yeah. about this dynamic. And
1: I think, I think that's a good point. Actually. I, I, I also believe, you know, that your brain, as I was mentioning, can block that those memories for a while. Mm. And, mm-hmm. uh, And I think it just there's just at a time when we become, you know, kind of farther into an an adulthood, but we are also triggered by certain things that are happening that allow those memories to come to surface. Um, But, you know, Mm -hmm. trauma gets locked in what we call the right side of the brain, the emotional side of the brain, where the amygdala is. That amygdala is our threat center of the brain. And we release high amounts of cortisol when we go through a trauma, which can kind of block the memory of that. And, um, healing just really, you know, healing means we take, we kind of access the left side of the brain, which helps make meaning of what happened to us. And it kind of unlocks that right side of the brain. And, you know, that's such a, that's such a good question. It's something that I, you know, definitely, um, want to think through more, Hmm. but, but well, it's just an observation.
0: I, I, I'm not I'm not sure where, if there's science to back it up,
1: but it it, it sure, it just happens yeah. anecdotally. Well, a we, lot and, and we do know, yeah, it can be triggered, especially. Well, what can often trigger it is just even the sexual relationship, because then your body has memories. Yes. So I remember one woman I was talking to that, you know, she didn't have memory until she began, you know, she got married. And then when she began being sexually intimate with her husband, all of the memories flooded because of the body sensations Mm. that happened that reminded her of what happened Mm. when she was a child that she had kind of blocked out. And so it's hard to know. I kind of just, I kind of believe it's just God. God knows when we're ready and when it's time. Mm. And, and, Mm. you know, when we're, when it's happened to us and we've kind of blocked it out, we don't realize that we have these maladaptive ways of coping. And that's what happens a lot of times women don't understand, why do I react the way I do? Or why do I have this kind of like, you know, intense fear of this situation that doesn't make any sense. And, and that's your body just telling you that maybe something happened that you're, you know, you're not aware of. And we just, our brains just have to be ready to process it. What I do know, and what I love is that God has designed our brains to heal. And yeah, I want to talk about that. I don't want to leave people with this sort of
0: discouraged feeling like, okay, I've got all this stuff in my past choices I made or things that happened to, uh, to me. Um, And now I feel all this shame and I feel this regret and um, these wounds. I don't want to leave people there. There is hope. There is healing. And and that's one of the things that I I love about your work is that you, you actually walk people through a healing process, a very biblical healing process. Can we talk about the five steps just briefly? And then, um, We'll talk about where people okay. can learn more. But. All right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and just kind of to to piggyback on that, you know, God has even designed our brains to to kind of make meaning of things that have happened in our past. And, you know, we and be able to access more positive neural pathways to to understand that, but then be able to to realize that we survived that, especially with trauma, but you know, come out feeling stronger and um more positive. And I, I think just to kind of share just kind of my journey, really, it just started with, first of all, just acknowledging what's happened to us. And I think this is what I see so often is we minimize things. And that's what our brain wants to do. We want to minimize. That was just that that was so long ago, it shouldn't bother me right now. Or I've dealt with that. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many times I hear women tell me about some sexual assault And then the next words out of their mouth is, yeah, but that was my fault. I shouldn't have trusted him or I shouldn't have been in that spot. And so because we carry that shame, even with childhood sexual abuse, because, you know, often our bodies respond and that makes us feel like our bodies betrayed us and that somehow we wanted it and somehow we asked for that. And so there's so much shame that we feel like we don't deserve to be healed. We deserve to have the consequences of that. And so really just starts with being able to be honest with ourselves and saying, yes, this happened to me. Yes. I made these choices. And, you know, I think in my struggle, you know, I kind of spent 25 years kind of just pretending that all that stuff didn't happen. That wasn't me. Mm -hmm. That was long ago. And I kind of put it in this,
0: yeah, I put it in this compartment
1: in my brain. And it was when God began to, you know, kind of stir my heart and say, you know, it is a part of who you are. It has kind of shaped it it's your filter of how you see, you know, your world and how you relate to friends and i want to i want to heal that for you so that you can be free from that and that's where i discovered the difference between forgiveness and healing and so it really just starts with being being willing to acknowledge that one of the one of the things that i often recommend a way to do that is to kind of do your life map and i ha- actually have that in the mm-hmm. kiss me again book where yeah, it's such I a know. great step because right. um, I even use it in my counseling, but, you know, just get get like, you look at your life kind of in these, you know, ch- categories or chunks of zero to 12 is your childhood, 13 to 19, your year t- teen years, 20 to 30, your young adult, young adult years, and then over 30, if you happen to be in that category. And you just kind of just spend some time with God and just say, what happened? You know, zero to 12, what was going on in my life? What are some negative things? that you know did someone molest me you know and actually when i start you know probing it's like memories come out that maybe and and sometimes people don't want those memories or scared of those but it helps us make sense of our the whole picture of our life so if you if you mm-hmm. had a divorce in your family or were exposed to pornography or had something traumatic happen in those 0 to 12 years we kind of just dismiss that but then when we look at our 13 to 19 years, it can make sense. Well, maybe that's why I started drinking when I was 13. I was molested when I was six, or maybe that's why I started having sex at 12, or maybe that's why I be, you know, so we start to make sense of our life and we, and, and then we're able to realize kind of the next step of what that healing looks like. And, you know, I would definitely say if there's been childhood abuse, you, you must start there and that's your first healing step because that mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. everything kind of comes out of that then. Yeah. Well, Hang on that, I love the second step that you kind of outlined in the book, which is then break, break the silence, invite somebody else into your story. And just again, anecdotally, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist and I'm certainly not practicing, but I just anecdotally, as I talk with women, it seems to me that that's the key the first step towards healing is when they'll invite somebody else, when they'll open that door and, and, um, to a therapist, to a mentor, to a friend, to a pastor, that
1: seems Mm -hmm. to be the first step. It is. And that was my first step. And it is the hardest step. Mm. (laughs) Absolutely. It's so scary to talk about those things, you know, and a lot of times we're, we're just afraid. First of all, if we say it out loud, it's like, makes it real. And secondly, you know, we're so afraid of all the emotions that are going to come with that, and so we just—you know—we're just—it's just so hard to go back to those painful things, and we don't want to remember that.
0: A good wise mentor will remind you of what's on the other side of that. I'm sure that's partly what you do in your in your practice all the time—is help people get a picture of what's beyond the. the exactly, hard work and in fact,
1: with those kind of experiences, we do have to go back. And like I said, bring that out of that, you know, trauma side of the brain and make meaning of it. But, you know, um, a a lot of times, you know, I hear people saying, you know, just like, you know, turn, you know, move forward. Don't forget, forget about the past. And I always say, sometimes we have to go back to the past before we can move forward because we get stuck. Even in our brains, we get stuck and we're not able to move, you know, move forward because of those experiences, we get stuck in the brain and we just get into this loop that we can't get out of, this negative core beliefs, negative thinking. You know, even with a lot of depression and anxiety, though a lot of that is, you know, that, that those body experiences, those, those body memories. And it's not, it's, I just want to encourage people because it just feels, people carry so much shame even about that. You know, I'll have people saying, why do I struggle with this? I just want to be done with this. Why does this have to be, you know, what I'm dealing with? And there's shame in that. And a lot of times even that shame keeps people from being willing to get healing, but breaking that silence, just being willing to, to, you know, you know, share that with someone, but I would encourage, you know, people to really be praying about who's a trustworthy, safe person to share that with. Not everyone is. Mm -hmm. And you know, God will God will show you who that is. There are
0: three other steps in sort of the healing process that you outline in your book. We're not going to go into those because um, I want to ask you this question because I know it's on the hearts and minds of a lot of parents. Do you have any advice for parents as they're trying to prepare their children, prepare their adolescents for a sexually healthy life? Um, we also have to be really mindful of protecting our kids mm-hmm. sexually. Can you give us, can you give some coaching to parents? Yeah, I have
1: a lot of ideas for that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm sure you do. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm just, you know, so concerned, you know, just what's happening when I sit with women and men and just hear about what's happened to them and just so alarmed at just some of the things that they have been exposed to. Uh, have not been maybe protected from and and with good meaning parents, just not knowing what to do. And I think preparing your children for their sexual future really begins very early, as early as you can by teaching them, first of all, proper names for their sexual body parts, because often, Mm -hmm. you know, we kind of use these cute little names. Uh, But what I'm just going to be honest, I'm just going to be super graphic here, because what happens is when pedophiles want to groom your child they'll start using kind of cutesy names. But if you're teaching your child proper names, then if they start talking about some different kind of names for their sexual body parts, that gives you a little clue that maybe somebody's talking to them. And so I just say straight out from the beginning, just teach them the proper names. And then they become comfortable with that. And then again, of course, teaching them that those are theirs. They don't belong to other people. We don't Let anyone touch those areas. We don't touch anyone else's, you know, private parts. And we can start teaching that to them very, very young. And I think that's important because what you're doing is you're making, you're normalizing that in a way that's making it safe to be able to talk about that. And secondly, um, and here's something, you know, that that happens a lot is I think it's important not to force your children to kind of kiss or hug relatives or, you know, family, friends or strangers um, because we create this sense that they're, they they do not have any control over that. They, they're kind of are powerless to what other people can do to their bodies. And that just, that just creates this opportunity for a pedophile to kind of capitalize on that. And so I think it's, yeah, it's okay to, to encourage your child to be, you know, um, respectful and to say hello and things, but to make, to make them kiss relatives that they don't feel comfortable kissing or sit on somebody's lap. I think if we didn't do that, we would be allowing that child to start to feel, you know, some autonomy over their body. Um, and then no secrets. You know, I often hear adults say to kids, oh, "This will just be our secret." You know, that I let you have candy. Um, I've even had my grandkids say that, like, "Let's just make that our secret." And I'll and I'll say, "You know, we don't keep any secrets from mommy and daddy," because that's a- yeah. I've had that mm-hmm. same conversation. That's what pedophiles do, <laughs> right? They'll say, "You know, this will just be our secret." And when we yeah. kind of have encouraged that, then kids kind of feel like that's okay to do. So those are just some very mm-hmm basic things as young children. And we, it would be important to kind of, to realize that we can start to make a, we can start to protect our children really young from those kind of things. And I think when we do that, we've already created an environment where our kids know that they can come to us about these things. And that continues to grow as they go into their teen years because everybody's teaching your teenager or your young adult about sex. There, everyone, but yeah. if you become the expert in that for your child's life, but starting young, then they're going to hopefully and more likely come to you for those expert, you know, things that they're going to talk about. I remember saying to my young, my young kids, because I didn't want them to make the same choices I made because no one talked to me about sex when I was growing up, nobody, and I had to navigate it all on my own, and I wanted to make sure my kids knew that I was going to be comfortable enough to initiate the conversation with them. And that I would always say to them, you can come and ask me anything about all of this stuff. And, and so that's how I think that's how we can do it. And then, you know, when I talk to young people, they really grasp the whole science piece of the bonding. And then. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask you about that because I think, I think we, we, we tend to come at it
0: from those mm-hmm. of us who are Christians and have a Christian worldview tend to come at it from a moral view when we're trying to teach our kids. And, and I think right. that's not wrong that, that we need to we need to teach them morals and values as well. But I think I think we have to do something mm-hmm. as well as uh, I think we, and, and I think the brain science, you're right, is it is another piece to add
1: to that exactly. conversation. And what does that do for adolescents? You know, uh, they're very much, science just kind of makes sense. And I think, you know, it it makes sense to me. It helps make meaning. In fact, as I began to discover the science, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, like what God's been saying all along is true. And it just, you know how I said, like our brain likes to make meaning of things. It's like, it helps kind of add a piece of meaning to why we're supposed to save sex for marriage. It's not like God's trying to ruin our fun. It's like, he's trying to provide for us you know, the the best opportunity to have that lifetime marriage. And of course the, you know, when we're not, when we save sex for that partner that we're going to spend our life with, we don't have anyone else in our brain. We haven't bonded to anyone else. And we have this, you know, opportunity to have that, you know, amazing bonding. And we, we know with oxytocin, you know, the longer you're married and the more you're having sex, that bond gets stronger and stronger. And when you I remember even going into high schools in kind of secular, you know, situations. And when I talked about the brain, I didn't, I couldn't even talk about God, which was, you know, fine with me because the science piece all comes from God anyways. Right. And (laughs) I mean, the light bulbs would go off. It's like, Oh yeah. Like I want to be married. I want to stay married for life. If this is going to help, you know, me achieve that, then that makes total sense to me. And I I love that because, Hmm. you know, the kids are just so practical and also, kids are very concrete in their thinking, and so it's a very concrete. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the spiritual aspect can be a little bit more abstract or vague, and uh, but the mm-hmm. but the science adds that concrete piece that helps. They they can even actually even visualize that in their brain, and it's very helpful. I think it's
0: it's it's so great then to kind of present from the science and then backdoor the spiritual side of things. Then you get to say, you know what, this is God's design. Mm -hmm. This is God's plan. Uh, It also helps us have a conversation with our kids Mm -hmm. about pornography. Uh, can we just take a couple oh, yeah. minutes and talk about that? How, how does understanding how the brain works help us understand the yes the appeal and the addictive nature yes. of pornography? Oh,
1: I'm glad you brought that up because there is a very much a chemical piece, of, you know, a biological piece that happens with pornography. We know that it's very addictive. In fact, one of the most addictive things that happens in the brain. And that's because, you know, with science, we've learned that you can actually train your brain to be aroused by certain things, kind of like a trigger, you know, like Pavlov and the dog and the bell, you know, he trained that dog mm-hmm. to respond to the bell, even without the presence of food. And that bell became a trigger to the to the dog's brain. Well, the same thing happens with sex. So if we're using pornography as a way to create that sexual arousal, you know, we're now training our brain, to respond to that. We're training our brain that, you know, to to use that as a way to experience sexual arousal and, and pleasure. And and this is my concern, what's happening. We are, the, as a young generation, especially the young, the, today's young generation, we are training our brains to be aroused by pornography. and And unfortunately, what can happen is we can train our brain to that and then not experience the same kind of sexual pleasure with a real person, so what happens is if you're using that, you're training your brain to that. And that's what you associate with sexual arousal and pleasure. And then I have all, you know, I talk to these people who then get married and they think they don't need pornography because they have a live person to have sex with. Again, a exactly, bigger exactly, right? they think. But what happens is because they have released all these chemicals and hormones with pornography, they don't release the same level of, Chemicals and hormones with a live person. And it happens all the time. We want to start bringing pornography into the marriage because we need that bigger chemical high. And so then we start becoming disinterested in our spouse because we need that or we need to move on to someone else. And it's, you know, and the Bible talks about this too like not awakening that pathway in the brain, that sexual pathway before the right time because. Just like Jesus said, you know, that we we are having sex in our brain and we're training our brains and it will have an impact in our future relationships. And that's the scary thing is people do not think that's an issue.
0: Yeah. But but science is also helping us understand how we can heal from that. Can you talk oh about yes. that just briefly you talked about pathways
1: mm-hmm. there's there's ways for the brain to reestablish absolutely. those pathways absolutely and that's the exciting that's the exciting thing whatever you know and for your listeners whatever god is bringing up to mind for them i want to just encourage you that you know whatever god's bringing up to mind he wants to heal and he can he has a plan to he, of healing and you know just like any addiction Uh, there is a pathway for healing for that. And, you know, when I talked about those chemicals that are released, there's various pathways for those to be released. And what's happening is our brains are plastic. There's actually what we call neuroplasticity happening. And it used to be they thought that the brain stopped developing uh, at a certain age. But now we know throughout the whole lifespan, we can change our brains. We can choose what pathways we're going to use. And by when we stop using one pathway that pathway actually gets smaller. And when we start using a different pathway, that pathway gets bigger. So we can literally through how we think and our behaviors begin to change those pathways in the brain. And with you know addiction to pornography, it really just starts with stop using that pathway and begin to use other pathways as an alternative for that are healthy and healing. And, and so again, a lot of times, people think that they can just stop, you know, doing that on their own. They, we really need help in that area. That is an area that really you need some professional help. You need to um, some accountability but there are specific strategies, you know, for addictions that are that that really help you overcome that.
0: Mm -hmm. I'd love to have you share some of those resources and we'll put those, you don't have to share them verbally, but um, send them to me and we'll put those on our, on our website. Also resources for parents, if they're wanting Mm -hmm. to have those conversations with their children, with their teenagers, again, on familylifecanada.com, we have some Mm -hmm. of those resources, but if you have some specifically want to recommend i'd, I'd really like yeah, to i do have some of that. those on my
1: website um sometimes right. uh, hopefully some some books be kind of go out of print but i had a great resource i used with my kids that um was age appropriate starting really young about three and then you know uh, progress the conversation as they got older just you yeah, having those great conversations Hmm.
0: Good. Well, we'll offer as many resources as we can to you. All of us are challenged in this. And to, and to be honest, Neil and I have the opportunity and the privilege really of speaking to like getting a window into probably thousands of couples. Um, and this area of our sexuality is just such a, a point mm-hmm. of pain for so many. Couples. There's so much shame attached, as you say, there's so many mm-hmm. deep wounds, there's Eyes that we've bought into there's um the shame and the regret and it's just it's defeating us in this area of our life that god intended to be a source of joy and as you said to our life partner so i i love what you're doing i love the research you've done i love the way you teach about it um if you want to know more kiss me again is a great book to read um barbara wilson .org has some great resources for people again we have links at familylifecanada.live um but thank you for this thank you for for your wisdom thank you for um i know it's hard to talk i, I know i remember you saying one time i don't want to be that <laughs> sex lady but you have become I that have. sex lady and to the better to the benefit of thousands and, of people and, and, so and i'm just wondering maybe. like how
1: like how old is too old to, to still be t- you know being the sex lady <laughs> Oh, I think it's better that's true. when you're older. That's true. Well, yeah, we have a lot more, you know, experience, a lot more to offer, I guess. But um, it, it, it's uh, yeah. just kind of awesome that you know I get to, you know, be be able to impact not only a younger generation, but then as these young women come and they're struggling with their relationships, and and then for the older women, and just seeing the transition of that. But um, I just, yeah, that's the payoff, isn't it? When you see the freedom yes. come into their lives and the. And the, the light mm-hmm. come back into the, the hope. eyes, yeah, the hope and, mm-hmm. and, and just, yeah, feeling whole kind of taking back what, you know, all of those, you know, experiences have robbed from us and becoming whole again. And that is, you know, what God wants for us, that freedom. And it's very exciting. And, I, and I'm really just a testimony of that. So I think that gives me uh added, even above the science and, and all of my research just being able to be able to say, yeah, this is real. This, this is my story. Um, I went through my own healing back in 2003 and here we are, we're going to celebrate our 39th wedding anniversary tomorrow. And, um, it's just amazing how, you know, God completely changed our marriage and our relationship and just, you know, our, my experience with sexual intimacy and what a difference it's made as we've grown older together. So it does, it's so worth it to go through the journey. Well, congratulations thank to you, you and Eric,
0: and, and thank you again for being with us on the podcast. If you'd like to get, uh, again, more information, go to familylifecanada.live um, or to wilson.org. And if you'd like to get involved in Compassion Canada, the We Rise as One campaign, help them help families in this pandemic, please go to compassion.ca slash COVID. I know that's a lot of websites to keep in mind. All of this will be uh, in the session notes on our website, familylifecanada.live So thanks, Barb. Thank you. Good so to good, see good to see talk you. to you. And talk to you. And thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're actually seeing each other because of the platform we use, but unfortunately we're just recording audio, but thanks to you. And thanks for, for joining us. We'll talk to you again next time on the Family Life Canada.